want you to go ahead and stand and open some more prayer, and then we're going to sing happy birthday to you, all right?
Say it loud 
Yeah, well, it's good to be in the Lord's house tonight and uh, have each one of you here with us. We're going to be in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 17 is where we're going to pick up our uh, preaching slash teaching tonight. I do, uh, uh, Brother Lalo and I read every missionary letter, um, or we try to read every missionary letter that uh, comes to us, and this one's from the Edwards. You remember we picked them up, started supporting them, headed to New Zealand, and it says, Dear Partners, Happy New Year. We have been in New Zealand over a month now and in our home for two weeks. Praise the Lord. Two hours after we walked out of the airport, we received a call from Pastor Cliff Wadsworth saying that the property manager in Tampo was saving a house for us to see. This property manager was a friend of one of the young men in a church in Oklahoma. Long story short, he said he had a friend that went to school with him years ago, and after sending a text to his friend, found out that he was in Tampo and was a property manager. After sending Ben an email sharing with him what we were looking for in a house, he also gave, uh, we also gave him Brother Cliff's contact number when uh, one would come available. It did, two hours after walking out of the airport. Uh, we called it our God house. And so I just thought that was so exciting. Just wanted to share it with you. Hopefully you're excited. Amen? There's no reason not to be excited. We ought to be excited. All right. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 17. And uh, this is our sixth um, lesson, sermon from the book of Ezekiel. By the way, Happy New Year's. I hope uh, you all had a Happy New Year. Looked like you did. You're here. And uh, so that's a good sign. And uh, Happy New Year's. Looking forward to what God has for us in 2024. And I don't know about you, but I want a closer walk with God than I've ever had before. And I want us as a church to grow uh, closer to the Lord than ever before. And so, uh, you know, those are great goals that we ought to have set for our lives. So Ezekiel chapter 17 I'm going to pick up reading verse number 1 through verse number 6. Verse number 1, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle, and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long-winged, full of feathers, which had divers colors, came unto Lebanon, and took the highest branch of the cedar. And he cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. He took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature, whose branches turned toward him, and the roots thereof were under him. So it became a vine and brought forth branches, and shot forth sprigs. Let's pray. Lord, we love you tonight, and we thank you for the time that is ours to be able to come together. It's our prayer and our desire that you would meet with us, that your will would be done in our lives and our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you give us understanding when it comes to the book of Ezekiel, uh, how these things might even apply in our own lives as we live uh, daily to seek to walk with you and to serve you. And so, Lord, uh, meet with us tonight. Have your hand upon us. Lead and guide in all that we would say and do here this evening, that you bring forth honor and glory to you. We love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. 
And so Ezekiel continues his message of judgment to Israel by two, uh, two additional parables and proverbs. And we see those here in chapter 17 and again in chapter 19. And so the first parable uh, we read right here in verses 1 through 6 carries on to verse number 11 through 14. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Saying now to the rebellious house, Know ye not what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem, and hath taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him to Babylon, and hath taken the king's seed, and made a covenant with him, and hath taken an oath of him. He hath also taken the mighty, the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be based, that it might not lift itself up, but that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. And so the information in the parable seen in the first six verses, where we have this great eagle that plucks off the top of a tall cedar tree and replants it elsewhere in fertile soil. Uh, soil. And the interpretation of that parable found in verses 11 through 14, the eagle is Nebuchadnezzar who carries off many Jewish citizens, the top of the cedar tree, unto the Babylonian captivity, where they fare well for the most part due to God's faithfulness. So here's a parable, it's going to happen. Of course, when you start thinking of Nebuchadnezzar and you think of Babylon, the first thing that pops into my head is Daniel. You know, Daniel was part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. He was taken to uh, be in Babylon and, and taken and raised there along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and many others. And so this was a, this was a fulfilled one. So we see the second parable, verses 7 through 10. It says, There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him and shot forth her branches towards him, that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. And it was planted in good soil by great waters, that it might bring forth branches, and that it might bear fruit, and it might be a goodly vine. Say thou, thus saith the Lord God, shall it prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof, and cut off the fruit thereof, that it is withered? It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring, even without great power or many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. Yea, behold, being planted, shall it prosper, shall it not utterly wither? When the east wind toucheth it, it shall wither in the furrows where it grew. And so a second parable, here another great eagle shows up, and the information is such that a part of a cedar tree replant, however soon it gives its allegiance to another eagle, that arrives on the scene because of this, uh, that section of the replant is destroyed by God. And so then in verses 15 through 21, you'll find an interpretation of the parable. The second eagle represents Egypt's Pharaoh, with whom the Judean king uh, Zedekiah allies against Nebuchadnezzar, resulting in Jerusalem's destruction. And so... We have these two parables, and they, they involve these great eagles. Now we have a third parable. Can you believe this? Uh, here's a third parable. And uh, it's found in verses 22 through 24 of the same chapter, chapter 17. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take the highest branches of the high cedar and will set it. 
I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and uh, imminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it and it shall bring forth browse and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar and under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing in the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And so we find that this parable, God himself one day takes a tender sprout from a tall tree and plants it atop Israel's highest mountain, where it becomes the ultimate and universal tree. Of course, anything that would have God's hand upon it would be the right thing, right? That's the, the one that he's, he's going to bless because he's got his hand upon it. Now, verse number 24 is kind of the interpretation of this parable. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of parables and and it's old history stuff, and so this may not be making a lot of important sense to you, but it is the explanation of what we find here. Verse number 24 says, And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, hath brought down the high tree, and hath exalted the low tree, hath dried up the green tree, and hath made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. So the interpretation was the original tree seems to be a reference to the house of David, from which eventually comes the Messiah himself, the second tree. And so God himself involved, had his hand upon that in the third parable. Now we have a fourth parable. Chapter 19, 1 through 9. Moreover, take thou up a lamentation for the princes of Israel, and say, What is thy mother? A lioness, she will lie down among lions, she flourisheth her whelps among young lions. She brought up one of the, her whelps, it became a young lion, and it learned to catch the prey, and it devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was taken in their pit, and they brought him with chains unto the land of Egypt. Now when she saw that she had waited, and her hope was lost, then she took another of her whelps and made him a young lion. And he went up and down among the lions. He became a young lion and learned to catch prey and devour men. And he knew their desolate palaces and he laid waste their cities. And the land was desolate and the fullness thereof by the noise of his roaring. Then the nations set against him on every side from the providences and spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit, and he put him in ward in chains, and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into holds, that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel. And so we have a fourth parable, if you would. A lioness has two cubs that become men-eaters, and both are eventually trapped, and the first cub is taken to Egypt, the second cub is taken to Babylon. A fifth parable, and this is the last of them, okay? The fifth parable. A strong and fruitful vine. Verse nine, uh, chapter, chapter 19, verse number 10. Thy mother is like a vine in thy blood planted by the waters. She is fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. And she had strong rods of the scepters of them that bear rule, and her statute was exalted among the thick branches. And she appeared in her height with the multitude of her branches. 
but she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground, and the east wind dried up her fruit. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. And fire is gone out of a rod of her branches, which hath devoured her fruit, so that she hath no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and shall be for a lamentation. So a strong, fruitful vine planted in fertile soil alongside a stream is suddenly uprooted and replanted in a barren desert where it begins to wither away. So these are all prophecies of, uh, and parables of what could happen, of what does happen, of what might happen uh, to the nation of Israel. God is trying to deal with them and has given Ezekiel these different parables to give to his people that they might be able to find truth in each one, that they might be able to liken it into their lot of life where they are and into uh, their existence of what it's going to be. These parables were given to them to be able to look and consider. And I just can't help but go back to the one uh, where God is in control. And that ought to be our prayer every day that God would be in control of our life that no matter what the issues that might come, that he would be the one in charge, knowing the end from the beginning. And so it brings us to the proverb. And this is rather interesting, chapter 18, sandwiched in between these parables, these five different parables, chapter 17, chapter 19. And so we have a proverb in chapter 18. Ezekiel begins this chapter by referring to a popular proverb widely quoted in Israel at the time. So if you take your attention and give it to uh, chapter 18 here, verse number 1, The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What meaneth ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, saith the Lord God, Ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. It shall die. Good place to underline right there. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. It is pointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. In verses 1 and 2, we find the parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouth are puckered at the taste. It's as if they, the parents, uh, the children are in reaction to what the parents have done. Like they're the outcome, like the parents live in sin. Now the, the kids have to carry that sin on their own. And we find in this portion of scripture, the proverb that's trying to be taught is that every man's responsible for his own sin. You're responsible for your sin, not me. Your mom and dad are not responsible for your sin. You are. Salvation, as we know through the study of the New Testament, salvation is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I cannot have it for anyone else but me, and I need it. I recognize I need it. Without Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, heaven will not be my home but I'm thankful to say that I have that personal relationship. That my sins that I have committed, I am responsible for. Jesus has forgiven them. Heaven's my eternal home. But my kids are not responsible for my sins. 
but praise God, I'm not responsible for theirs. Amen? My wife, although she's an angel, sometimes I wonder what side, but anyhow, the angel that she is, I'm not responsible for her sins. She's not responsible for mine. She said big amen right there. She is personally responsible for her own. So the proverb he's trying to teach the people here is that the parents are not guilty of, of uh, the sins of the children. The children do not have the sins of the parents passed on or vice versa. That's going to be kind of the argument that we're going to find in this portion of Scripture. And so the correction of the proverb, verses 5 through 28, Ezekiel refutes, refutes this false teaching by pointing out that God punishes only the individual for his or her sin. And he cites five examples to illustrate this. So I'm going to give you five things here, five examples that illustrate the fact that the individual is responsible for their own sin. The first is the case of the righteous versus the unrighteous. The one who sins is the one who dies. Okay? Two verses, verse number 20 and verse number 25. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Pretty cut and dry. Verse 25. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? So there is this discussion going back and forth, and they're trying to pass off their sin. And God says, oh, well, wait a minute. He who sins, he's guilty. Unless he does something about it, he's going to die. And he lives in unrighteousness, he dies in unrighteousness. He lives in righteousness, he dies in righteousness. It's, it's not someone else going to put him down. We're individually responsible for what we do. Brings us to our second point. The case of a righteous man. He will surely live. Verses 5 through 9. But if a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment. He that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken an any increase, that hath withhold his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just. He shall surely live saith the Lord. I kind of like to liken this to the fact that once we accept Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, there ought to be a difference in the way we live. We shouldn't continue living in sin. When we become a saved individual, <clears throat> unrighteousness ought to leave our life. We ought to walk away from it. We ought to put it behind us. I remember years ago, we had a young couple come... <clears throat> And they got saved, and I remember going into their house before uh, they got saved. I remember going into their house, and they had wine bottles and 
beer bottles as decorations. You know, they, they, they can put wine in a lot of really cool-looking bottles, and they had these bottles on their shelves. And I remember them getting saved, and like, I don't know, six months later, they had invited me over to their house, and their decor had all changed. It was amazing. It's like we don't identify with that anymore. That unrighteousness is gone. And then you saw plaques about the Lord, and, and uh, you saw things that related to their family, and the, the unrighteousness was gone. So it ought to be in our life. There ought to be a change that happens that when the world would look at us, they go, there's something different about them, the way they act, the way they talk, um, been in their house. I remember years ago, I, I served as president of our uh, homeowners association and was hosting a meeting one night in my house, and one of the ladies that had come uh, to my house said, uh, so, Kevin, would, you, would, it, would it bother you if um, I would bring some beer next time? I said, yes, ma'am, it would. I said, this is a dry house. This is a dry house. It would. And she was, you know, she was of a different religion, and she immediately said, that's fine. I just thought I would ask. I'm glad she asked. I didn't. It wasn't that awkward show up at the door, you know, with a 40 in her hand. It, it was all able to be dealt with. Um, but it's, it's, well, there ought to be righteousness in our life. It, the world ought to see something different in us. The third is the case of a righteous man's unrighteous son, 10 through 13. The righteous man's son will surely die and take full blame. Verse 10. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that doeth the like to any one of these things, and that doeth not any of those duties, but even hath eaten upon the mountains and defiled his neighbor's wife, hath oppressed the poor and needy, hath spoiled by violence, hath not restored the pledge, and hath lifted up his eyes to the idols, hath committed abomination, hath given forth upon usury, and hath taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations, he shall surely die, his blood shall be upon him. The fault didn't go back to mom and dad. You know, mom and dads, we get to the point, we raise our kids the best we can, and then we, we kind of pray and step back, and they have to make choices. Matter of fact, they begin making choices at our home, and those choices begin to affect their outcome. But once they're out on their own, all their choices, all those things they choose, that's on them. It's not on you. And so uh, that's, that's what's being implied here. The fourth is the case of the unrighteous man's righteous son. So he's dealing with it from all angles. The righteous man, the unrighteous man, the righteous man with an unrighteous son, and now we're going to have an unrighteous man with a righteous son. The case of the unrighteous man's righteous son, verses 14 through 19. The son will not die because of his father's sin. Now, lo, if he beget a son that seeth all his father's sins, which he hath done, and considereth, and doeth not such like, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, hath not defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath oppressed any, hath not withholden the pledge, neither hath spoiled by violence, but hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, that hath taken off his hand from the poor, 
and that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my righteousness, hath walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Yet say ye, why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father, when the son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. And then finally, the case of the righteous man who becomes unrighteous. Verse 24. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin, that he has sinned, in them shall he die. When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, he dieth in them, for his iniquity that he hath done shall he die. And so judgment will come upon the life of a believer who turns away from God and walks away from God. Many times God will take the life of that individual because of its being a hindrance, to others being saved, or uh, it might be a hindrance that people would look at him and say, oh, look what he's getting away from. Many times God just go ahead and take that individual. He'll die for his sin, yet we know that he's saved because he's eternally secure. The case of the unrighteous people who become righteous. Hallelujah for that. They will live. Verses 21 through 23 and 27 through 28. But if the wicked will turn... From all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked shall die, saith the Lord, and not that he should return? From his ways and live. Interesting questions being posed right there. Some would say, well, God's just this big, mean God, and he just wants to see people die. That's not true. That's the question he's posing right there. Again, when the wicked man, verse 27, again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Praise God for the forgiveness that heaven be our eternal home. So the challenge of Proverbs, or the, of the proverb here in chapter 18, found in verses, the, the challenge is found in verse 29 through 32. In light of all this, God urges the people of Israel to repent so that they will not be punished for their unrighteous ways. Verse 29. Yet saith the house of Israel, The way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you. O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God, Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall be, not be your ruin. 
Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Praise God for a loving God, who his desire and his plan is that all men might come to repentance that all men might come to know him as their Lord and Savior, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm so glad he didn't die for those that fit a list or a qualification. Jesus died for all men, that all might be saved. And we can be thankful for that. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Use it in our lives and hearts that we daily might live to bring honor and glory to you. We thank you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So we have a prayer bulletin or prayer sheets.